If you please be seated and take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And you might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. You said last week and when the email came that we were going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to. But in order for us to understand Ecclesiastes better, we need to turn to the New Testament to get a bigger, greater perspective of this world that we live in and see how it relates to the book of Ecclesiastes. But before we get right into that, can anybody tell me one of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes that we looked at last week? How does, how does the book start? Does anybody remember? What was kind of the summary of everything about life in the beginning of the book? Vanity. That's right. Vanity. He's, he's looking about life and he says, vanity. All is vanity. Now, we talked a little bit about that word last week. Now, since we're in review, does anybody remember how the book ends? He says, let us hear now the conclusion of the whole matter. Who remembers? How does it end? Two key truths. Fear God. And what's the other one? Goes right along with it. And keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. So we have the book starting off and all throughout it talking about vanity, but when it actually comes all to the end in the conclusion of it all, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, the reason I had you turn to Romans chapter 8 is to learn a little bit more about the doctrinal, that's what the teaching background of vanity is all about. See, all through the book of Ecclesiastes, we have Solomon talking about vanity, and he's observing vanity in the world around him, all that is under the sun. Remember, we talked about that last week. And he keeps seeing vanity, and he keeps seeing vanity, and he talks about the vexation of spirit. It just seems that the poor man is overwhelmed. Today we're going to look some more at chapter 2, and he speaks in chapter 2 of just despair. Well, why is life so full of vanity? Why? Romans chapter 8 gives us details. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 for I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. We are the creature and we are waiting for a day of the resurrection here, the manifestation of the sons of God. Now it gives us some background, verse 20. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. Now does anybody remember when and how and why the creature was subjected to vanity? Who knows Genesis 1.31? Who knows Genesis 1.31? Okay, you can quote it with me when you catch it. And God saw everything that he had made, 
And behold, it was very good. Is there any vanity in that? Was there any vanity in the very good? No. There was no vanity in the very good. Everything was very good. But the creation, and us particular creatures, were made subject to vanity because of the sin of Adam. And so when we read in the book of Ecclesiastes the struggle that Solomon is going through, you can get glimpses of it where he's looking back to Genesis. And you get glimpses that the Holy Spirit is using him to have glimpses of things that aren't exactly under the sun, things that only God could reveal to him. It's a complicated book, and I'll be candid with you. There's actually a lot of debate about how we need to understand and interpret the book of Ecclesiastes. But again, as we talked about last week, how the book begins and how the book ends is very, very, very important. You may have struggle understanding or get confused and all the detail in between, but recognize this truth, that this world we live in has been subjected to vanity, emptiness, in a sense, not entirely, but worthless, without value. And that's because of sin. It's because of sin. But as it tells us in Romans chapter 8, if we keep on reading, verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty of the children of God. Here again, a glimpse looking to the future. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. And what's the adoption? To wit, the redemption of our body, the resurrection of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. When you struggle understanding some of the themes in Ecclesiastes, come over and read Romans chapter 8. This section, but really ongoing through the rest of the chapter, which we don't have time to go through this morning, but the whole chapter gives an eternal perspective of what Ecclesiastes sometimes is just limited to the earthly perspective under the sun. Romans 8 gives us the big picture, and it's really, really fascinating. So we see that God originally created everything to be what? Very good. Very good. But yet, what brought it about to become vanity? What? Sin. Sin came that brought it to be vanity, which then made a whole lot of problems. Now turn with me back to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we're going to look, uh, and we're going to start in the middle of chapter 1. It's not my purpose here today or in the coming weeks to spend a lot of time going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, in fact, I've already stretched it out longer than I wanted to. But um, one of my goals here is for us to really just kind of get the glimpse of the biographical 
aspect or the, the history of Solomon as a person. So we learned about him and his reign and his life, and, but yet it seems that there's some details that are missing. And some of those details are recorded for us here in Ecclesiastes. How many of you know what a biography is? Oh, good. Lots of you know what a biography is. Hope, do you know what a biography is? A biography is a book that is written about someone's life. A book that's written about someone's life. Now, how many of you know what an autobiography is? Oh, good. Autobiography is? An autobiography is also a book that's written about someone's life, but instead of you writing about my life, I write about my own life. So an autobiography is when you write about your own life. In the book of Ecclesiastes, we have some autobiographical details. What's that mean? We have details that Solomon is writing about his own life. And so we don't only know details about Solomon from 1 Kings or 2 Chronicles. We also have details about Solomon's life recorded here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember last week we talked about the fact that there's some good indication and hints at how the book builds and climaxes at the end, that this book was likely written when Solomon was an old man. And that's due to a little bit of speculation, but the fact that Solomon so specifically deals with old age in the whole last chapter of the book of of Ecclesiastes. So we back up, though, and we find very specific autobiographical details. Look with me, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. He's talking about himself. And I gave my heart to seek and to search out wisdom concerning all things that are done under the sun. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. Does that sound like Romans chapter 8? It sure does to me. He's got the perspective here. He says, I have seen all the works that are done under the heaven, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He really is struggling with this. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. What's that mean? It means that his spirit was vexed. His spirit was bothered. It was troubled. You ever been really sad and really bothered of how a day went? That means your spirit was vexed. And he's describing life this way. He goes on, that which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanted cannot be numbered. I communed with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived what this, that this also is vexation of spirit. For much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, Solomon, you remember, we learned about he was the wisest man ever to live, right? 
And he says that I applied my heart to know wisdom and to also know folly. Now, does that sound like a good idea? No, it's not a good idea. And he knows it wasn't a good idea. But yet this is evidence that he entered right on into it. And all the terrible things we learned about Solomon a few weeks ago of how he turned from the Lord, you remember, he turned from the Lord and his heart walked not after the Lord. That was him going and pursuing after folly, which if we remember anything from the Proverbs is warned against over and over, written by Solomon. Solomon is recognizing that fact now, looking back over his life. Some people have looked at verse 18 and they say, ah, see, you know, wisdom's not all that it's cracked out up to be. You know, it's not so special. It's not so great. Now tell me, is it a good thing to be wise, yes or no? Yes, it's a good thing to be wise. But then what does he say here? For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Really? Well, actually, yes. You know, the more that you understand of life, there's certain things I say when I learn, I wish I didn't know that. I wish I didn't know that. You know, you read about different philosophies and, and religions and different perspectives of life, and you learn about it. And in a sense, it's wisdom. But then in a sense... You just wish, I didn't know anything about that. I, I wish it didn't even exist. Some of the horrors in our world, in a sense, it's wise for us to be aware of it to, for several reasons. One, to bring justice. And another reason is so that we can warn ourselves and our children and those around us against the dangers and evils of it. But yet it will bring sorrows, a lot of, a lot of bad news in the world. And that's what he's talking about here. But now look at chapter 2. He starts to talk some more about himself. And we're going to find some things very familiar. Because we already learned about Solomon and some of his things over in First, Chron First Kings and Second Chronicles. He says in chapter 2, I said in mine heart, go to now. I will prove thee with mirth. What's mirth? Mirth is like having a celebration, having rejoicing and having a party. It's speaking of that. And he says... Therefore, enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. He's like, I'm going to go enjoy life, and I'm going to enjoy pleasure. <sighs> but even in that, there's vanity. There's emptiness. There's futility. There's lack of fulfillment. I said of laughter, it is mad. You ever thought? When something's funny to say, oh, that's mad. Well, you know what it means to be mad? It means to be out of your mind. It means to be crazy. Well, is laughter always that? No, but sometimes. And, and he says of mirth, what doeth it? doesn't do any good for him. Verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men, which they should do under the sun all the days of their lives. He even tries to pursue wine. And this is in context not clear as whether or not it's alcoholic wine or non-alcoholic wine. He just pursued it and there's this, there's, there was folly, emptiness in it. He says in verse 4, I made 
great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Now, this is amazing. You remember we learned about Solomon? He first of all built the house of the Lord. It was magnificent. Remember, David described it as needing to be exceeding magnificent. But he didn't finish after just building the temple. You remember, he spent 14 years building his own house. And you remember, it wasn't just a little house like you or mine. It was a massive palace. It wasn't even just a a, a single building. It was a compound of palaces. It had several throne rooms. It had a whole house dedicated just one of his wives of 700 wives. Imagine how big of a house you have to have to keep, keep, keep up with 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wow. Huge. You remember he had the, the, the one room that was filled with the cedars of Lebanon with these magnificent pillars that came up. And each throughout this were these huge shields of beaten solid gold. He had so much gold that he just took it and beat it into shields and he hung it up on his pillars and his hall of pillars. And the pillars weren't just any pillars. They were made of red sandalwood, one of the rarest, most beautiful woods in the world that has a natural aroma to it. He builds this house. He builds his throne room. You remember his throne room with the steps that come up to the throne? And the throne is ivory, which you can't even have nowadays or you can't buy it anymore. It's illegal to buy. It's so precious and rare. It's, it's, it's made of ivory, and then the ivory throne is overlaid with gold, and he has these lions on the either side of his leading up to his throne, and it's just this magnificent throne room. And now we find out that not only had he built these beautiful, gorgeous buildings and palace, but he'd also made vineyards and gardens, and he landscaped them beautifully with pools for practical and beauty purposes. He's experiencing and living in lavish wealth. Wealth. Wealth beyond comprehension. Beyond comprehension. And then, verse 7, he says, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Do you remember the record of how much food was required to feed the people in the palace in one day? remember that? Overwhelming amount of food was required every single day to feed his family and all of his servants in his house. He goes on and speaks of the great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Here again, again talking about those provisions, if he's going to have all these maidservants in the house and servants in the house, he's going to also need to have a lot of oxen and cattle to feed them. And so he had it. But not only did he have enough to feed everybody, he had extra. He just had more than ever before. Verse 8, he says, I gathered me also silver and gold. Now you remember it was recorded for us over in Second Chronicles that every year Solomon gathered of his navy 25 tons of gold every year. Gold was abundant, and he had it. 
Who remembers how silver was treated in Jerusalem in these days? Does anybody remember? Elijah, how was silver treated? He's got it right. As stones in the street. I'm actually thinking about selling some of my silver because it's way high right now. Not way high, but higher than pretty high. And, uh, and, uh, and, and you know, <laughs> it, it's definitely not stones in the street. Nope. Um, I'm going to sell it and buy a piano. But anyway, all this, such fun. Uh, uh, silver. But to Solomon in his day was so abundant, it was like stones in the street. And he had all the gold. But then look, verse 8, middle. And the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. Oh, remember we learned about that as well over in First Chronicles, where it talked about him bringing in the ivory from all around. He was bringing in not only ivory, but he was bringing in the peacocks and the apes. And he was bringing in all kinds of treasures of all different kinds of precious stones Treasures that only kings would have. He was gathering this all together. He says, I got me men singers and women singers. He gathered together. He, he, had, he had music. You know, we take music very, 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 very much for granted nowadays. You know, we just can turn it on in our car and we can just go and, and turn it on in our homes. And we can, I mean, we, we carry this stuff in our pockets you know, we have music available and accessible to us almost any time that we want to listen to music. That wasn't the case in Solomon's day. You had to have musicians come play your music. And, um, and if you know anything about music and have musicians in your home, you know that it takes lots of work and lots of practice for it to actually be enjoyable to listen to. We've been listening to a lot of violin lately. And you know what? It's not real enjoyable in our house right now. It is not something I sit down and want to listen to. Now, sometimes when my wife wants to play the piano or even some of my kids want to play the piano, you know, okay, I'll sit down with a book and, and I'll enjoy them playing piano in the next room or across the room. But you know what? Right now, I can't do that with violin. I like have to go to the basement or go outside if I'm going to try to focus. Because it, it, early on in the violin, it's got this, you know, that weird sound. And it just doesn't quite work. Now, they're working at it, and believe me, uh, the first few weeks were unbearable. But it's gotten better. It's gotten real good, right? Hasn't it? Sounds a lot better. Yeah. But it's going to take lots more practice. Well, that's here. Solomon is talking here about the fact that he has lavish wealth to be able to hire musicians to come and to play for him. And it speaks of the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. His father was an inventor of musical instruments and a designer. And here he has continued the tradition on in the family. And so verse 9, he says, So I was great, and I increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Now that is very, very, very fascinating to me. Because you might think, wait a minute, Solomon. You asked God for wisdom, and he gave it to him, right? But then you loved many strange women and you allowed them to turn your heart away from the Lord. Where was the wisdom then? 
Here we have an evidence of the fact that Solomon still had his wisdom, and he went into that disobedience in a thing we call high-handed. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just in a weak moment led astray or in some way deceived. When he turned from the Lord, he knew exactly, exactly what he was doing. So we continue on. Verse 10. For we see here now in his wisdom all that he knew, all that he understood. He says, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. We find out here that Solomon actually was a hard worker, and it doesn't surprise me at all that he was a hard worker. And he says, I enjoyed it. Now, we're going to find out, looking, if you keep reading through Ecclesiastes and take in the whole context of Scripture, you'll find out that there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with having great riches. In fact, it's an evidence in some cases of the blessing of God. Sometimes it's an evidence of someone working hard. And sometimes it's the evidence of being a crook. But nothing in and of itself of being rich is not what is wrong. It is those who trust in uncertain riches that is the problem. Solomon was one who trusted in uncertain riches. He's also one who used those riches to to satisfy his own lusts and pleasures. You know, sometimes we, we talked about this several, several months ago when we dealt with the subject of polygamy in the Bible, that is, men who marry many wives. And sometimes we think of it as more common than it really was. And the reason that is is because the people who we find in the Bible as polygamists, those who had more than one wife, were people who were very wealthy. You couldn't have that many wives and subsequently children, unless you were wealthy. And a lot of the major characters that are recorded in history were very wealthy and powerful people, hence the reason why it was so common among them. Here we see Solomon in this sense. He's carrying this on. In this wealth, he, he's not using it in the, all the best ways. And he admits it. For he says in verse 11, Then I looked on all my works that my hands, notice that word, my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. This guy's got a bum life, doesn't he? Well, you know, in some ways... So do we all. Some people look at Solomon and they say, Wow! The glory of Solomon, the wealth of Solomon is proverbial. Everybody knows about how rich and wealthy he was. And here he is, a guy who could afford anything that his heart desired. I mean, how could you not be more happy than that? What Solomon is telling us in this is that it's not about how much you have or how lavish your lifestyle may be. Without, and this isn't laid out crystal clear in Ecclesiastes, 
But let's take the whole context of Scripture and consider it in this question. And as we do that, we realize that without having a relationship with God, fearing Him, keeping His commandments, loving Him with all of our heart, mind, and soul, and having what Romans chapter 8 talks about, that hope, that hope, that hope of a resurrection, that hope we have in Christ, indeed it is vexation of spirit. Indeed it is vanity. Indeed there is no profit under the sun. What's the point in it all? What's the point of it all? Now, we do all these things and we have things and we live life and we need to live life. Some people would say, huh, see, why should I work hard? See, Solomon worked hard. He labored. Why should I work hard? Well, interesting you should bring that up. I've heard people bring that up. It's not a good idea to bring it up because you need to keep reading. Actually, turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 9 because we have here, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is so fascinating because it's really, it's really this teacher and he's philosophizing life. And he's bringing out things that are obvious things in life under the sun. And then he brings in, and he, and he brings in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tidbits of truth. And look with me, there's a transition in the book of Ecclesiastes in the middle of chapter 9 at verse 9. It says this, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity. See, he's recognizing that the life is a vanity, but he's saying at the same time, live joyfully with your companion, your wife, in this life of vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which thou takest under the sun. So we see all this, and you might conclude and say, see, what's the point in working hard? I just need to give up on life or worse yet, truly, literally give up on life and taking your own life, which is a terrible thing. Solomon's not talking about that kind of thing. For he's saying here, live your life joyfully. Yes, indeed, life is full of vanity, and vanity, vanity, and vexation of spirit. It is, it is, it is. I'm proving it to you. This is something that, by the way, I think many Christians need to be careful when they share the gospel with others. Because sometimes we act like, well, when you believe in Jesus, things are going to be great for you. Well, they will be in eternity, and in some senses, even now, because it's spiritually that way. But there's a lot of vanity in life. And, and sometimes the one who is, who is surrendered to Christ to live righteously sometimes experiences more troubles and problems than otherwise. That's why we need to really be honest with Romans chapter 8 and even Ecclesiastes. Some have said Ecclesiastes is a really great um, gospel track. And, and it is, but it needs an addendum. It needs at least Romans chapter 8 to go at the end of it. Um, but it would, it really does. It really does set up what life is like and give you the perspective and reason with you. And, and, and you know what? We can all read Ecclesiastes, especially. Not so, this is an interesting part of different cultures. In American culture, most kids don't experience a lot of hardship. I shouldn't say that most. It's a general of that. There are a lot of children who experience a lot of hardship in America. Um, actually, sometimes they suffer the worst. Um, but for the, for the most part, we, we, we have it easy in life. 
especially as Americans. It's not the same totally identically in other cultures. But yet we can all, for the most part, open Ecclesiastes and kind of, you know, kind of identify with it. But we can't forget it. We still live joyfully. Here he says with, his, with your wife. And then we're talking about that labor. Oh, it's all vanity. Well, lest you give up and say, well, I'm not going to work hard. Look at Ecclesiastes 9.10. He says this, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. It's kind of morbid as he's looking to the fact that life is, death is coming. But yet at the same time, as even as we consider death, do live life joyfully and work hard. When you find something for your hands to do, do it with all your might. And don't forget the conclusion of the book. Fear God and keep his commandments while you're at it. There's the key to it all. There's the key to it all. But as it continues on, let's go back to chapter 2. He's dealt with all of this. And it says here in verse 12, it kind of shifts direction and topic. And we're not going to spend as much time in this, but I'd like to read it to bring some observation here of just the despair that we may be tempted to have. Ecclesiastes 2.12. And I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. What he's saying here is wisdom is better than folly. You know, we need to pay attention to that. I once heard a preacher one time who talked about the brilliant person, the smart person, and the stupid person. And he said, the brilliant person sees someone else playing with an electrical outlet and, you know, sticking two metal objects in it, what's going to happen? If you survive it, but you probably will and if it's wired right. Uh, I shouldn't say that you probably will. <laughs> just, don't, just assume you won't. <laughs> yeah, just don't do it. But, but here's the point. The, 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 the one who is brilliant sees someone else do that, and they're like, huh, I am not going to try that. I'm not going to try that. That person's brilliant. Now, what about the smart person? Smart person who is the one that actually tried it, <laughs> and he says, I'm not doing that again. That's where Solomon's at at this point. And the stupid person is the person who goes, over and over and over. Now you say nobody would do that. And you're right, for the most part, nobody would do that. And don't try it. But so many times, as Solomon also used in a Proverbs, as a dog returneth to its vomit, now we, we keep going back and committing and doing those same stupid sins. We know better. We know better. We have all the understanding we need to know that it's wrong. But we keep doing it. So let's take warning here. Solomon dabbled in the folly. And he didn't lay down a model for us. Some people have tempted to say, well, hey, Solomon went and tried all this stuff of the flesh and the world out, so what's wrong with me trying it out? The whole point of Ecclesiastes, the whole point of the Song of Solomon is to warn you to say, I was stupid enough to try it. Don't you try it. That's the whole point of it. That's why he's writing it. 
And I think he has someone special in mind. His son, Rehoboam. Let's keep reading because he mentions Rehoboam kind of indirectly. Let's, let's see. Let's see. So here we are. Let's start at verse 13. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all, that is, dying. Then said I in my heart, as it happened to the fool, so it happened even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, but this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. The wise die just like the fool. Therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto a man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Think Rehoboam there. We're going to learn about Rehoboam. Remember this question he asks. The one who I'm going to leave everything to, is he going to be a wise man or a fool man? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity, yet to the man that hath not labored, there it shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw, and it was from the hand of God. For who can eat, or who else can hasten thereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. See, he's grappling with life and he's struggling through with life. There's a lot in that chapter we don't have time to go into this morning. All this grapple and struggle with life. He hated life. He was despair of life. You know, you can expect to be tempted to despair of life in your life. Do you know that? You can expect it. But when that temptation comes, don't forget Romans 8. Don't forget Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about the creature that was made subject to vanity. That's us. Not willingly, but by reason of him who have subjected the same in hope. You see, when man sinned, the whole world 
fell under a curse of vanity, futility. It was the very aspect of what God said to Adam. He said, in the sweat you, you will toil, and in the sweat of thy brow shalt thou eat thy bread. But the whole aspect of what's going on there is the thorns and thistles and all that coming forth. It, it's just, it, was, it, was, it was a vexation of spirit. It was, it was the vanity that's being talked about. It's, it's really, Ecclesiastes is, is a description of the outworking of that toil that was described in the curse way back to Adam. But in that, when God brought the earth under the curse, because of man's sin, it was done with hope alongside. Remember when the judgments came, God also made the promise to the woman. He says that he will put enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent. He says that the seed of the woman would bruise or crush the head of the serpent but yet the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. That was a prophecy that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, would be born of the seed of the woman, would be born, live a perfect sinless life, and give his life as a sacrifice for sin, the sins of all the world throughout all history. And when he died on that cross, he crushed the power of Satan. He crushed the power of sin. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, he gained victory over the power of death. And all the death, 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 death talked about in the vanity of life of Ecclesiastes brings ultimate significance in the fact that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And it's not just something that's in the future. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior today, his life becomes our life. And he moves inside. And when we let him, he lives his life through us. And it's a life that is full of peace and joy and love. It's a life that is full of everything but vanity. It doesn't mean that vanity is not all around us, for indeed, vanity is all around us. But in the midst of all of the vanity, when we have Jesus living inside of us, we also have the fruits of his spirit growing up inside of us, and we have his life in us. And we have hope, hope, hope. The hope talked about in, in Romans chapter 8, this hope of the adoption to wit, that is, the resurrection of the body. We have this hope of the resurrection. We have this hope in Jesus Christ. And you've got to turn with me to one more passage in the very end of your Bible as we close. Revelation chapter 21. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity, says the preacher. Well, what's going to happen with this vanity, this curse in life? Well, in the very end of this earth, it tells us in Revelation 21, John, the Apostle John, in a vision he records this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Then he speaks of the new Jerusalem that he saw. And then in verse 4 he says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Shall there be any more pain? For the former things are passed away. 
Turn over to Revelation chapter 22. For there it says in verse 3, And there shall be no more curse. No more vanity. Vanity's taken care of. For the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's awesome. All of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. Indeed, it's true. Romans 8 confirms it. But in the midst of the vanity, we have hope. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have hope to live this life, and we look to the future of everlasting life in a new heaven and a new earth. But I'll tell you, at the same time that it describes this wonderful and glorious hope, the warnings are also sounded in these very same chapters that those who are verse 8 of 21, the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the whoremongers and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You see, in Ecclesiastes, we learn about this part of life and this part of life, and it appears that everyone goes to the same place, into the grave dead, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But it's not really true. For when we take again the whole context of Scripture together and looking back on this from a New Testament perspective, we see that we as believers have hope in Jesus. Unbelievers do not. And so much of what you might struggle with in Ecclesiastes is because you need hope and you need Jesus. Now, one more thing. In all your labor that you do, and you do it with all your might, Christians, be careful. Because you and me were weak. Jesus said that if we abide in him and he in us, we will bring forth much fruit. And in John chapter 15, Jesus said, For without me, ye can do nothing. That's vanity. So as we live our lives, it's not about us clamping down in self-discipline and hard work. It is about us trusting God, letting him work through us that hard work, and let us do it with all our might with Christ, Christ working through us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. Indeed, we see the truth of these, this book all around us even today. But at the same time, we see the truth of more clearly explained in Romans 8, that we have hope. And Lord, though we don't necessarily see it with our physical eyes, may we live it spiritually, that you might be glorified in our lives, and Lord, that we might bring forth much fruit for your glory, for without you we can do nothing. So this morning we yield to you and we hope in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.